You are listening to episode 35 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. It's hard to believe it has been over two and a half years since I recorded the last episode of Stoicism on Fire. As I announced on the traditional Stoicism Facebook page in early 2019, I accepted a new position at work that required all of my energy and attention for a while. While I was gone, I received emails and Facebook messages once a month or so from listeners. They always expressed gratitude for the podcast and hoped that it would return. Thank you. I want you to know that your comments and encouragement meant a lot to me. Much to my surprise, while I was getting the podcast ready for this episode of Stoicism on Fire, I noticed a large number of emails in the inbox at traditionalstoicism.com. In my absence, you, the Stoicism on Fire listeners, sent me almost 200 email messages thanking me for the blog and podcast. Unfortunately, the auto-forwarding feature on the site was not working, so I never saw any of those until now. Thank you for all of those kind messages, and I will attempt to respond to all of them in the coming month or so. Now that I'm back at the microphone, I hope to continue providing you some insights about the path of the Stoic Prokopton, if the cosmos is willing, of course. I'm not an academic, a guru, or a sage. I'm just an ordinary guy with a full-time job and a family whose mind and life were changed by the Stoic worldview and practices that I saw within those texts. This podcast is my attempt to point people toward that same holistic Stoic worldview and practice. Now let's move on to the next chapter in our exploration of the Enchiridion. Enchiridion 5 is rather short. However, its meaning is deep and it requires a lot of commentary. Therefore, I've had to break this lesson up into two different parts. Today, we'll be covering part one. It is not things themselves that trouble people but their opinions about things. Death, for instance, is nothing terrible. Otherwise, it would have appeared that way to Socrates as well. But the terrible thing is the opinion that death is terrible. So whenever we are frustrated or troubled or pained, let us never hold anyone responsible except ourselves, meaning our own opinions. Uneducated people blame others when they are doing badly. Those whose education is underway blame themselves but a fully educated person blames no one, neither himself nor anyone else. Enchiridion 5 This passage complements Enchiridion 1, where Epictetus taught us that desiring and fearing things beyond our complete control will leave us frustrated, pained, and troubled, and will cause us to fault gods and men. In Enchiridion 5, Epictetus takes this fundamental Stoic principle to its ultimate conclusion by adding death to the list of things that we should not fear. He declares it is our opinion about death, rather than death itself, that troubles us. I am recording this in September of 2021, and the specter of death in the form of the COVID pandemic has been ever-present for more than two and a half years. This pandemic has changed our lives and our world. For some people, it has become an all-encompassing fear. Yet in this passage from the Enchiridion, Epictetus declares that death 
is nothing terrible. For most people, particularly those raised in the West, an assertion like this by Epictetus might seem bizarre, and it may even provoke a negative response or dismissal. Let's be honest. This claim is completely counter to the way most of us think and attempt to live our lives. We were taught that externals like the negative opinions of others, poverty, sickness, and especially death, are inherently bad and necessarily entail unhappiness. We learned this lesson early in our childhood, and we learned it well. So well, in fact, that we spend a great deal of time, money, and energy attempting to avoid all of these externals, death in particular. However, practicing Stoics are repeatedly confronted with lessons like this in the text that teach the opposite. Stoicism teaches us we can have a good flow in life regardless of our present situation. This doctrine is the crux of Stoic philosophical practice. At this point, some of you may be wondering, in what way can that assertion by Epictetus actually be true? How can it be that poverty, sickness, and even death are not terrible? How can it be that wealth, good health, and life are not inherently good? Well, in every case except death, the answer provided by the Stoics is quite simple, even though many people will likely find it unsatisfactory. The ancient Stoics teach us that we must change our thinking about what is truly good and bad. They teach us that moral excellence is the only inherent good. Therefore, the Stoic path trains us to set aside our aversion to poverty, sickness, public shame, and everything that is not within our complete control, including death. There is no overstatement in this passage. Epictetus is not trying to shock us with hyperbole. He is simply restating a profound truth we repeatedly see throughout the Stoic writings. An excellent character, virtue, is the only true good, and a corrupted character, vice, is the only truly bad thing. Therefore, if we seek happiness in things and events that we do not entirely control, we will be frustrated, pained, and troubled. Likewise, we will be miserable if we strive to avoid anything other than those irrational thoughts and wicked intentions that corrupt our character, our soul. Okay, you may be thinking, I understand that virtue is the only good and everything else is an indifferent and should not be desired as something good in itself or feared as something bad in itself. But how can death not be terrible? After all, Stoicism does not offer the consolation of an afterlife. To answer this question, Epictetus appeals to Socrates, one of the only persons the Stoics acknowledged as a sage. Epictetus asserts that death is not terrible. Otherwise, it would have appeared that way to Socrates. At first glance, this might appear to be a rather trite argument for not fearing death. Alternatively, it might appear to be an unsophisticated appeal to authority. However, this passage has an unspoken message, which the students of Epictetus would have understood. Remember, as I taught in the first episode of our exploration of the Enchiridion, this book is a handbook. It is designed to keep the lessons of Stoicism close at hand for the person who is already a Stoic practitioner. Arian created this handbook to remind practicing Stoics about the lessons with which they were already familiar. That is certainly the case here, so we need to dig a little deeper to understand this passage. As I noted in episode 4, Zeno embarked on his philosophical path after reading about the life of Socrates in Xenophon's memorabilia. And as I just said, 
Socrates was considered a sage by the ancient Stoics. Therefore, to understand the meaning of Epictetus' appeal to Socrates, we must turn to Plato's Apology, which tells the story of Socrates' trial. This story is what Epictetus is referring to in Uncaridian 5, and his students would have understood that, and therefore would have understood his meaning. As most of you likely know, Socrates was put on trial for impiety and other false charges. He refused to beg, grovel, and weep for his accusers or the jurors during that trial. If you read Plato's Apology, you will see Socrates was rather defiant, almost belligerent during this trial. Then, after he was found guilty of those false charges, Socrates agreed with Miletus, one of his accusers, that the sentence for these charges should be death. The jurors then held a second vote and condemned Socrates to death. After warning the jurors their fate would be worse than his for their injustice that they had just committed, Socrates turned to those who voted for acquittal and explained why he did not consider his death sentence a terrible thing. He reminded those jurors about his inner daimon, or spiritual guide, that always warned him when he was about to do something wrong. Socrates said, At all previous times, my familiar prophetic power, my spiritual manifestation, frequently opposed me, even in small matters, when I was about to do something wrong. But now, that as you can see for yourselves, I was faced with what one might think and what is generally thought to be the worst of evils, my divine sign has not opposed me, either when I left home at dawn or when I came into court. Let's unravel this. Socrates' argument goes something like this. Premise 1. In the past, my divine sign, the Stoics called this a diamond or God within, always warned me when I was about to do something wrong, even if it was about some small matter. Premise 2. My divine sign has been silent since I left my home to come to this trial. It was quiet when I refused to beg and plead for my life, and it was silent when I agreed the death sentence was appropriate for the crime for which I had been accused and judged guilty. Premise 3. The silence of my divine sign is evidence I have done nothing wrong, including recommending a death sentence for myself. Conclusion number 1. What has happened to me may very well be a good thing. Conclusion number two, those of us who believe death to be an evil are certainly wrong. This is what Epictetus was appealing to as evidence that death is not something terrible. Epictetus is not saying simply that death is nothing terrible because Socrates said so. Instead, he is arguing death must not be terrible, otherwise it would have appeared so to Socrates. How? Through a warning from his divine sign or daimon. The ancient Stoics held Socrates in such high regard, they trusted his experience with his daimon about death, that death is not something terrible. Additionally, we must consider death within the context of Stoic theory. In Stoic physics, the cosmos is a divine, rational, living organism permeated by pneuma, which constituted the world's soul. Thus, the Stoics argued the cosmos is conscious. As Diogenes Laertius noted, the doctrine that the world is a living being, rational, animate, and intelligent, is laid down by Chrysippus in the first book of his treatise on providence, by Apollodorus, in his physics, and by Poseidonius. It is a living thing in the sense of an animate substance endowed with sensation, for animal is better than non-animal, 
and nothing is better than the world. Ergo, the world is a living being, and it is endowed with soul, as is clear from our several souls being each a fragment of it. The Stoics reasonably argued that nothing comes from nothing. If humans are rational, that rationality must come from the cosmos. Therefore, the cosmos is rational. In his brilliant book, The Inner Citadel, Pierre Hedo notes, All the dogmas of Stoicism derive from this existential choice. It is impossible that the universe could produce human rationality unless the latter were already in some way present in the former. I'm going to repeat that. All the dogmas of Stoicism derive from this existential choice. It is impossible that the universe could produce human rationality unless the latter were already in some way present in the former. Throughout the surviving Stoic texts, we see an acknowledgement of a connection between the divine part of our individual nature and the divinity that is the cosmos. In Meditations 3.13, Marcus reminds himself to, quote, Keep your doctrines at the ready, to enable you to understand things divine and human, so to perform every action, even the very smallest, as one who is mindful of the bond that unites the two realms, end quote. The daimon is a fragment of the divine within us. Now, I covered this topic in much more detail in episode 25, but in Letters 41, Seneca calls this daimon the sacred spirit that dwells within us. In another of his letters, he tells Lucilius, quote, you must devote your efforts to that which does not deteriorate over time and which no obstacle can bar. What is that? It is the mind, but specifically this mind, which is upright, great, and good. What else would you call it but God dwelling in a human body? Letters 31. Finally, here is one of many examples where Epictetus points out the relationship between us and the divinity that permeates the cosmos. But you, for your part, are of primary value. You're a fragment of God. Why are you ignorant, then, of your high birth? Why is it that you don't know where you come from? Discourses 2.8.11 Simply put, the ancient Stoics argued that if the cosmos is conscious, rational, and providentially ordered, it would not be antagonistic toward humans. They trusted that the cosmos is ultimately benevolent toward humankind. After all, we are a fragment of that divine. Therefore, the cosmos would not make human death a terrible thing. Passages like Enchiridion 5 offer a poignant example of how some Stoic doctrines only make sense within the context of the Stoic worldview. When passages like this are separated from that worldview, they quickly become counterintuitive. That is why so many moderns abandon some aspects of Stoicism. They simply cannot accept the Stoic worldview, and they cannot make sense of the doctrines like this apart from that worldview. Therefore, they simply set them aside as unnecessary, not important, or the errant beliefs of pre-Humian and pre-Darwinian thinkers. Alternatively, in his defense of the respectability and reasonableness of the cosmic viewpoint in Stoic ethics, Marcello Biori wrote, if one takes into consideration the relevance of the cosmological approach to Stoic ethics, some apparently counterintuitive Stoic tenets, such as nothing but vice is good, or life and health and their opposites, death and disease, are neither good nor bad, become understandable. This is, in fact, the explanation we sometimes find in different Stoic philosophers when they have to account for the apparently counterintuitive thesis 
that pain, death, and so forth are not evils. While the topic of death is discussed frequently in the Stoic texts, it appears the ancient Stoics did not spend a great deal of time speculating about an afterlife. They often seem resigned to it being unknowable and argue it doesn't matter. Here's an example from Seneca. What is death? Either an end or a crossing over. I'm not afraid to come to an end, for that is the same as never having started. And neither am I afraid to cross over, for nowhere will I be as constricted as I am here. Letters 65-24. Here's a similar passage from Marcus Aurelius. One who is afraid of death fears either an absence of consciousness or its alteration. But if consciousness is no longer present, you will no longer be conscious of any evil. And if you have come to a somewhat altered consciousness, you will merely be a living creature of another kind, and you will not have ceased to live. Meditations 8.58 Finally, here is Epictetus in true protreptic fashion, taking on an imaginary interlocutor on the topic. But the time has come for you to die. Why do you say to die? Don't make a tragedy of the matter, but tell it as it is. It is now time for the material of which you are composed to return to the elements from which it came. And what is terrible in that? What element among all that make up the universe will be fated to perish? What new or extraordinary thing is going to come about? Is it because of this that the tyrant awakens fear? Is it for this reason that the swords of the guards seem long and sharp? Let others be afraid of such things. For my part, I've inquired into them, and no one holds any power over me. I've been set free by God, and I know his commands. No one has the power any longer to enslave me. I have the right emancipator. I have the right judges. You hold mastery over my body? Why, what is that to me? Don't you have the power to send me into exile or throw me into chains? Again, I yield all of that to you and my poor body in its entirety at whatever time you wish. Test your power on me and you will see how far it extends. Discourses 4. Dot seven, fifteen to eighteen. There are many more examples like these in the Stoic texts. Death was not something the ancient Stoics feared. Moreover, they didn't appear too concerned about what happens after we die. Why? For two good reasons. First, it's not up to us. Second, our job is to keep our attention, prosike, on our present desires, aversions, and impulses to act if we want to develop virtue and experience a good flow in this life. The Stoics frequently thought about death and found reasons not to fear it. But their attitude about what happens after death appears to be que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. As the specter of death continues to cast a long shadow across the globe in 2021, I urge you to turn your attention to what is up to you, your desires, aversions, and impulses to act. Death may come to you soon. It will come to all of us eventually. After that, whatever will be, will be. Nevertheless, until death does come for us, we are in complete control of our thoughts and intentions. During times like this, our focus must be inward on the development of our inner citadel. We cannot control COVID. That is not up to us. We cannot control the political discord that divides us. That is not up to us. We cannot control the racial tensions created by past events. That is not up to us. We can only change what is up to us, our character. Therefore, we must focus our attention on traveling the Stoic path of the Prokopton. We must build our inner citadel because 
we are the only ones who can. Now, please don't misinterpret this as a call to retreat to the garden. It is no such thing. It is the opposite. It is a call to action in a troubled world filled with angry and frightened people during challenging times. Nevertheless, we must understand that it is only from within those impenetrable walls of our inner citadel that our good character can positively affect the lives of our family, friends, community, country, globe, and the cosmos as a whole. For a change to occur out there in the world, it has to start within each of us, because that is all we control. Therefore, let's keep our practice of Stoicism on fire. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire. Fire.